0: For me, it's like I haven't had a choice. It's my experiences have made it that that for me, it's important to always center the margins.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Fourth Space podcast. This is the third episode in our ongoing collaboration with the Black Perspectives Office. And for this episode, the BPO's founding coordinator, Annick Mougil flavienne sits down with Marlène Lopez. Marlène is the Program and Outreach Coordinator at the Simone de Beauvoir Institute, and today she discusses with Unique the themes that led to her work, her experiences as a black feminist, the mobilizing work that she does around supporting survivors of sexual violence in Montreal North, and the impact she hopes to continue to shape at Concordia and beyond. This episode was recorded in mid-February 2021.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to the Black Perspectives live podcast series at 4th Space Concordia. We'd like to begin by acknowledging that the Black Perspectives office, 4th Space and Concordia University are located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Ganyut Nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather today. Jot Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today it is a home to a diverse population of Indigenous and other peoples. We respect the continued connections with the past, present, and future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. We'd also like to state that the Black Perspectives Office is informed by and stands in solidarity with Black communities in Canada and across the world who continuously fight against anti-Black interpersonal and systemic racism. Hello, everyone. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm particularly excited for this, This webinar because marley is is a, a sister from another mister. <laughs> so I'm um, quite excited to be engaging in this conversation with you and all of that. Um, marley, would you like to introduce yourself and kind of tell us a little bit about how you got to this particular role at Concordia, but also a little bit about your general parkour in life?
0: So good afternoon, thank you so much Anik for inviting me. I will say I'm kind of nervous, like I said earlier, because Anik is a dear friend, sister, and it's the first interview I do where the person interviewing me knows me intimately. So, so I'm kind of nervous, but um, thank you for inviting me. And so to answer your question, Um, I come from the community sector. I worked uh, several years within the movement to end sexual violence for the Coalition of Rape Crisis Center here in Quebec. So I was in charge of coordinating the intersectionality and diversity division. I worked with women's groups and community organizations organizing around prevention against sexual violence and issues concerning sexual violence. But that touch minority groups like indigenous women, racialized women, LGBTQ communities, et cetera. So um, yeah, I come from community and I started working at the Simone de Beauvoir Institute roughly two years ago, next April, in charge of uh, coordinating the new interdisciplinary studies and sexuality program. And I also had the mandate of coordinating uh, events and also doing community outreach. So it's a new program, and we're building it in coordination with Natalie Curry Toe, who used to be the program director. And part of you know what we want to do is um, develop meaningful relationships with community orgs and value and highlight and showcase. Community-based knowledge because it's really important. You want me to explain a little bit more about my life? So I was born in Puerto Rico. My father is a Black Cuban immigrant, and my mom's Puerto Rican. And we moved when I was five years old to the States. So I was raised in the Deep South, New Orleans, Florida, um, where I did my elementary school part of middle school, and then when I was like about thirteen, my mom decided that it was time to leave the States and we relocated again in Puerto Rico. So I did my high school undergraduate at the University of Puerto Rico. And I think that really shaped me because, well, two things shaped me. The fact that I was raised part of my life in the deep South, I I think that that gave me a... specific consciousness in terms of race politics, in terms of politics around um, migration. And before moving to the States, I think it was when I moved to the States that I realized I was um, black because in Puerto Rico, I think discussions around race, they're starting now, but everybody just likes to say we're all Puerto Rican and try to not elaborate on racial dynamics within the island. So I remember moving to the States, I was confronted to the fact that, yeah, I was Latino, but I was black. And I was, you know, before being Latino, I was black. So I think that um, gave me a certain consciousness. I was also aware about um, decolonial politics because Puerto Rico is a colony. So moving to the States and the treatment that Puerto Ricans had at that time and continue to have in the States. And the fact that most Americans don't even know that Puerto Rico is a colony, you know, I would get asked my green card. Um, They didn't know that, you know, we're American citizens. And so that gave me a certain also, that gave me an interest in learning more about Puerto Rico and about colonial politics. And so I started getting involved when I was 15, 16, in separatist movements in Puerto Rico. And I continued that work in the university. And so, and then later on, I decided to come do uh, graduate studies in Quebec. And so I did a master's in Université de Montréal in international studies. And so in a past life, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to work in international cooperation. And so when I finished that degree, I I was, um, I did a project in Cuba, and it was my first uh, project in terms of international cooperation. And just that experience led me to understand that I did not want to continue doing work. So, uh, but, it also, I think I I began to feel that I needed to leave Canada and go back home and, and just work and just live back home. And so, I ended up living a year in Venezuela because I was super interested in the in revolution Bolivariana. And so I began with uh, my ex-partner. I began working in Venezuela. He he, he used to be an ophthalmologist and they were involved in a mission bringing um, health care to um, Venezuelans that don't have access to it. And so I began working with women that also were organizing around um, microcredits and programs to address gender equality. So after that, I moved to Cuba back home because um, I felt that I needed to have that experience um, and be with the family that I didn't know well. And so I lived with my grandmother, who was an activist and also a member of the Cuban Federation of Women. And so I think. I got a lot of my politics from my grandmother and also um, the interest in organizing in the women's movement. And so I spent seven years in Cuba living. And then after Cuba, I came here and um, I decided to continue working within the women's movement. And I was part of a women's um, collective called Fondation Parole de Femmes which gave a platform for racialized women here in Quebec to express themselves around different issues. And after that, I started organizing with the Quebec women's federation and now I'm vice president of the federation.
2: One of the things that I've noticed a lot in in kind of pop culture or just you know like the society conversations these days is um you know how much of activism and social justice is kind of centered around uh, American narratives of of what social justice looks like as if other parts of the world have never have not had activist um, frameworks for many 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 generations or else we wouldn't be here you know like myself coming from you know a, a Haitian context where both of my parents were were activists and. My father was like a political exile, and and all that. I think that, yeah, I think that often we 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 f- think we're reinventing the wheel, and we um, undervalue the so many knowledges that come from many many different parts of the world, and um, and our grandmothers and our grand, you know, like all of our, the people who have contributed to why we're able to think the way that we think, um, and rooting in in that. Um, I also wanted to think think about. I know that you identify as a black feminist, um, and I wanted to know. If you could expand a little bit more on that and and what does Black feminism mean to you and why do you say that when you present yourself?
0: So you said something really important around um, how our experience shape our work. And I think it's important to say that, yeah, I identify as a Black feminist. And also, I've never taken... A course on feminism or a women's studies course, which is uh, it's it's kind of interesting because a lot a lot of the people that I that I've um, met or worked with that work you know within the women's movement come from these types of um, academic backgrounds where they have studied women's studies or feminisms, and I have never <laughs> taken one course. And, you know, I always like to say that my feminism comes from my experiences. Um, Black feminist scholars have shaped my work in terms of giving me the vocabulary to articulate and describe my experiences and other experiences that Black women have. I guess I would say, yeah, that my work is informed by a history of Black queer women organizing in social movements that center Black queer folks. And I think it's important to say also that I don't talk about Black feminism as being one. It's for me, it's plural. A lot of Black women that identify as Black feminists. It's really for me, it's super difficult to define. But if I had to define it, I would just say that it's important to center how, as a Black woman, race, class, able ability, um, sexual orientation, and gender identity, how all that influences our experiences as a, as a black woman and especially class. I think today within the women's movement, um, we don't talk enough about class, women's advance, advancement and gender
2: equality. In all of your work, I know that you speak a lot about intersections, whether that be, you know, anti-black racism, gender-based violence, police violence, class. Um, I'm I'm really inspired by that, and I feel that um, it's so necessary for us to to think about those those intersections, um, particularly in in this pandemic, which which has been, uh, you know, an interesting moment for a lot of these intersections to really. Um, I guess, unfortunately, be highlighted in ways that were invisible as before. How does that impact your work, whether that be, you know, at the Simone de Beauvoir Institute or the work that you kind of engage with outside of the Institute? How do you kind of marry some of all all of these areas? Because I know that, at least in my experience, um, I'm seeing a lot of silos. I'm seeing a lot of people wanting to work on one issue at a time and, and not realizing that they're kind of one in the same in a lot of ways. Um, and I, though I understand the, the, the need to kind of highlight maybe certain communities or et cetera, um, I find it very limiting because you know if, I, if we're looking at anti-Blackness and we're not looking at gender, then what are we really doing? And so I wanted to know how how are you addressing that in your own work? I haven't had
0: a choice like I know that for a lot of people it's difficult to um understand that we have to address all intersections and you know you can't separate race from gender and vice versa and but for me it's been like I have no choice I my experiences in life have have made it that and since I i like my work is informed my, by my experiences it's it's just like it plays out that way. Um, in terms of being a, a Black queer woman, I cannot organize if I'm, if my organizing does not include those experiences, does not include um, Black folks with these experiences. Early in my work, in terms of organizing around feminist, feminist issues, I had a clear idea on how race, gender, sexual orientation, and like how they intersected, but one thing, that and also class, but one thing that was missing was ability, and so it was when I um, became a mother and um, became a mother of a Black autistic kid that I started seeing how, how ability also intersects with all these other systems of um, oppression. And so once again, it wasn't through reading or study. It was through experiences, seeing my, my kid excluded and the experiences he was having in school, and not only in the institutions that we navigate, but also within Um, organizing. And you know about this. Um, You um, helped me write that article on my experiences in organizing and how ableism plays out within social movements and the fact that we don't even address it. And so I like, yeah, just to answer your question, for me, it's like I haven't had a choice. It's my experiences have made it that that for me, it's important to always center the margins.
2: Speaking of that article that you wrote, can you kind of speak a little bit to those challenges? I find that in organizing, whether that be in the community sector and the, you know, the academic sector or the whatever, policymaking, et cetera, I encounter so many challenges of, of trying to bring the many intersections of, of my own personal life, whether that be caregiving or mothering or, you know, whatever it is. And I would love to hear a little bit more about the challenges that you experience in, in terms of being able to represent, A, the, the many identities that you carry within your own intersection, but also the people that you want to center
0: yeah, it's 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 difficult because um we have a tendency within social movements to um sometimes reproduce the same dynamics that we aim to like abolish. Whether it be organizing and, and anti-racist movements, we tend to center a certain group of people in our organizing. And so we don't acknowledge that within, you know, for example, the black community. There are other communities that are pushed to the margins. So if it's in LGBT organizing, we're going to center white LGBTQ folks. If it's within Black Black liberation struggles, we're going to center. We usually center the experiences of Black male cis het you know people. So it's 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 a tendency to always start center my majority groups even within minority groups and that's like a it's a big challenge to raise awareness and also to convince folks that in centering the margins you're not being divisive because that's something I hear everywhere like whether it be in women's group they're gonna say oh but you know the main struggle is patriarchy and we need to be united we can't be divided by you know addressing racism by a addressing colonialism by uh, addressing ableism and when you're in working with the black liberation movements you can hear the same type of comments like oh we can't divide ourselves like a, as a community suffering racism so why do we have to like, talk about other issues that affect our community, that affect minority groups in our communities. So it's something that that I've seen in organizing with different social movements, and it's a challenge to, you know, work in in understanding that by centering the margins, you're not being devices. You're just ensuring that everyone is able to be free at the end.
2: Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I, and I love the way that you, you frame it, like, centering the margins, because I think that I, I, we've definitely seen it within black community organizing the systems that have been put in place by black communities have benefited all right so whether that be like in terms of labor rights in terms of you know so many of these different movements that we've been central to have ended ended up being the kind of the the prototype the model the frameworks in which other communities are are using to to get their sorts of um justice and and it's really quite interesting to me that you know you, again like there's this fear of centering the margin or actually thinking about our minor more minority groups when being able to think about them as kind of the the framework from which we we move out from then actually p- creates a structure that is much more so- solid. Yeah, I I also would love to talk. You know, you talked a bit about mothering and and just the, the different like intersections of your life. And I wanted to know how how has the the pandemic impacted your work and also your life. And and I know that especially in that beginning part of the pandemic, not that it's in any way kind of eased off, but I guess we're more used to it now. But the the particularities of trying to maintain your responsibilities when the pandemic is hitting your your family life in a very particular way
0: i was in survival mode to be honest it was really difficult because at the beginning of the pandemic schools closed and they remained closed for almost like six months so i had to you know work a full-time job plus another full-time job of being a mother because my kid was at home and it was especially difficult because um unfortunately there was no support Or from the schools because my my kid was in a special ed class. And believe it or not, um, these classes were completely abandoned. And so um, it was really hard the first, like six months of the pandemic, it was super hard. And at the beginning it was like the isolation because I'm used to, I've never organized online. (laughs) And so you have to learn new tools at the beginning, I was like, okay, everything's going to be on, is, like, are we not going to like organize anymore while it's, you know, the pandemic is happening? Like, how is this going to work? And then, you know, everybody started looking for alternative ways of organizing and, you know, George Floyd happened. And so the summertime was a very busy, busy time in terms of organizing Um, after George Floyd's death, also organizing in the context of sexual violence because there was a a series of of denunciations. And so it became once again, another um, like a a big conversation in terms of, you know, media. And so, yeah, so it was hard and it continues to be hard. And I think the, the, the hardest part is um, in terms of accessibility. And and I like live that every day with with my son and the fact that, you know, how how to navigate institutions that were already difficult to navigate, but which now become even more difficult.
2: I don't know for you, but I know that, you know, we talk about mothering a lot. And um, one of the things that I've been experiencing the most kind of viscerally is like this... um, You know, coming from community that's like so heavily surveilled and so heavily policed to have like this like constant camera in our homes is like really like I find it really intense in in a lot of ways and intense on two levels. On one level, because it's I feel like as a black person, it feels very difficult to have to share so much of my home with communities that don't necessarily respect our home or understand our home or value it in any kind of way. And then on another level of, you know, with that access, I feel like there's even smaller moments of like commentary or, um, engagement that feels so, um, superficial. It's like, it's, it make, it almost makes the burden harder, you know? So you, you know, like. Single parenting, we we both know how intense single parenting can be. And to and then to have like people comment on like, Oh, how are you making it happen? or et cetera, you know, and, and also like I'm a caregiver for my parent and my mom and and that that also that this layer of kind of eyes on our lives in ways that we didn't necessarily consent to because and having kind of this outsider perspective on it, which means that people can also comment on it, but then don't necessarily support more than to comment. Right. It's just kind of like, oh, how do you do it without ever feeling like there's anything that can be done? And I think that that's the the biggest stick point I'm finding in engaging with anti-discriminatory, anti-racist work and et cetera, et cetera, is that often it's like people look at us um, particularly when we're in positions where we're kind of doing the, the more visible justice work, people will kind of like, wow, amazing. You're doing so much. That's so great, et cetera. How can we help without ever actually offering anything, which I think is like um, really counterintuitive for me because, you know, like, I mean, I come from a community like you don't go to somebody's house without bring something. You don't have to ask them what you bring. You just show up with something, right? So it's like really, um, so I don't know if you, you've you experienced it in that way and, and how, how that's felt for you.
0: Yeah, I've experienced it. And um, and the how do you do it or, oh my God, like the the fake admiration type thing that, you know, where they compliment you. But then <clears throat> when you ask for help, you know, you you, you see that there's not really a, a sense of a community So in terms of how I deal with it, I have my, you know, my own community of friends that are family, like you, (laughs) it's counting on one another because it's, it's really, it's really isolating. As an organizer, I could say, I, I believe that organizers are sometimes some of the loneliest people out there because, I don't know, I think that. A lot of times we're just seen as organizers and our humanity sometimes is like not even considered or besides being an organizer, you know, you're a mother, you're, you know. So yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated.
2: (laughs) I find it really hard to to balance the kind of extra emotional labor. You know, we talk about the invisible labor, especially, you know, in academia, a lot of the the talk around um, invisible labor is like, you know, you supporting students who identify with you. And and of course, that is a big part of it, right? It's like, um, who comes to us, who needs us, like the kind of support that we give others. But I think another aspect that I'm finding quite difficult at this moment is the emotional labor of just Seeing how much your life doesn't equate to other people's lives and having not only do they have a glimpse in yours, but you get to have a glimpse in theirs and seeing their support networks happening like in real time. And it's really like, I find it kind of jarring, you know, like to, to be like, oh wow, I can just like literally see it happening right now and know that that's like the weight that you have to carry and, and that there won't necessarily be some sort of relief to that on a day to day basis.
0: If we were to talk about compounding effects of the pandemic, one of them is like really isolation. And I see a lot of people talk about isolation. I I don't know if people acknowledge that a lot of communities have been living in isolation even before the pandemic. For example, um, if I talk about parents who have kids with disabilities, like if I talk about um, schools here in Quebec that have classes, special ed classes, a lot of times, like in my experiences, these classes, I've never seen a white Quebecois kid on a special ed class in a public school. And that was, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't. I'm just saying, in my experience, they've all been specifically newly arrived immigrants and mostly black and brown. And so on a lot of times they don't speak the language, And so I, you know, I remember meeting parents, Latin American parents that don't speak French and having to try to help out to see if they can communicate with the teachers. And there's a lot of uh, South Asian parents that don't speak French and like just witnessing the isolation that these parents navigate in, in terms of not having the tools to advocate for their kids who are, you know, facing so many barriers and it's really hard. And, you know, I've been watching this since I arrived. I arrived, I came back in 2015 with a kid and I've seen how, you know, parent like the isolation. And so, and there's so many other communities that have been living in precarious conditions and in isolation. And now with the pandemic, it's even worse, but now everybody's talking about like the isolating factor. And it's like, well, you know, this has been happening even this was happening even before the pandemic for so many communities and and we failed to acknowledge it.
2: You know, the discourse right now is just like, oh, you know, it's our, it's our right to be able to participate. It's our right to, our right has been taken away. And I'm like, well, (laughs) that's so interesting. Oh, (laughs) so interesting that now we're realizing that participating and being able to, to have access, um, to full access to to participate in society is such a crucial need for, for all, you know? I think that that's kind of my understanding of ways in which Black women have been able to, to survive from generation to generation is that we take our experiences and find ways to re-energize them and use them for the the good of our like communities and and so um helping our communities and supporting our communities, and I really loved what you touched on in terms of how organizers can be so dehumanized in a lot of ways and and dehumanized i think on on both ends right because I think that when we end up taking an organizer role we we get a bit put on a pedestal by the communities that we're helping, and then we also kind of um seen as like i don't know maybe untouchable by commun- from allying co- communities and that's that's like really difficult, but um, but in, in a lot of ways, I also find that it's the only way for me to um, to move forward is to kind of find a way to reuse that energy and to bring it into my work. And, and I was wondering if what what aspects of your, your current experiences are showing up in your work at Concordia?
0: I coordinate the sexuality studies program, but like I said, I'm also in charge of doing community outreach. And I think the fact that I've organized with different communities And that I come from the community sector that informs a lot of my work and the way I do my work. Coming from community sector, I know that a lot of times the relationships that academia has with the community sector are highly extractive. When I was um, hired at Concordia at the Institute, I knew that I did not want to replicate or reproduce those types of relationships because I was like on the other side, you know? And so for me, it's important to take time and build relationships and see which ways we could collaborate, always taking in account the power dynamics that exist, you know, between community and um, academia and the ways that traditionally um, and historically academia has extracted and co-opted a lot of knowledge that comes from community and lived experiences of different communities. So for me, that's like super important. And that's what informs the community outreach part of my work. In terms of community outreach, yeah, it's the main project right now. Um, So like I said, I used to work for the Quebec Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers. And when I worked there, I would receive a lot of calls from Montreal North, specifically from the CLSC, from social workers wanting to refer patients to rape crisis centers that had lived experience of sexual violence. And when I would tell them that, for example, for um, patients coming from, you know, women coming from Montreal North, that the closest rape crisis center that was, you know, that didn't have a, like a, a waiting list was in Oshlaga, Maison Neuve. It was like, what? You know, my patient can't go to Osh- Oshlaga, uh, Maison Neuve. Uh, it's too far away. Transportation barriers, um, like For those who haven't been to Montreal North, unfortunately, you know, local government has never, STM has never invested in the transportation infrastructure in Montreal North. It's an isolated community, you know, that told me that, you know, there needed to be work done. so I started doing outreach, contacting community partners in Montreal North to see if there was any possibility of working to demand that there be a sexual assault resource center in Montreal North. It was, you know, it was very difficult because there's a lot of politics around this, believe it or not. And also the fact that a lot of rape crisis centers are working in austerity with austerity measures. There's a competition on, you know, if money comes in, where it's going to go. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. Black and racialized communities are not a priority. So I started organizing uh, with um, Najez Mustafa from Hoodstock and Gabriel Gabo, As seen, we started organizing to see if meeting with community orgs, meeting with rape crisis centers to see if we could push the government to invest in a resource center in Montreal North. And so we, you know, we came to a lot of dead ends. The mainstream organizations that address sexual violence were not interested in helping us. Um, They did not want to share their their tools either. After a brief pause where I left uh, my mandate and in my um, position at the Quebec Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers, and then um, went to work at Concordia. And during the summer with like another wave of survivors of sexual violence sharing their experience, um, we also participated in a lot of media talking about the fact that in Montreal North, survivors are still waiting for resources. And so we also, we had meetings with local authority and officials, and uh, we started, we decided to start to continue working on this project. And that's when the Office of Community Engagement at Concordia, Andrea, contacted me to see if I would be interested in working on a project, a collaboration between a community org in Montreal North and the Office of Community Engagement. And so I reached out to Narges Mustafa at Hoodstock and we started working again and it's going, it's going very well. There's a group of um, organizers from Hoodstock led by Narges. There's a research, uh, a research agent that's working. We're working on, we're finishing an action plan which um we're going to present to uh, local government provincial government to um ask for permanent funding and we've already been approached by um potential um funders private funders for the project so it's yeah it's it's very promising and and we're very 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 happy and excited about it
2: yeah i think it's it's such necessary work and um i really appreciate you kind of sh- sharing that timeline because i think that You know, there's this misunderstanding often that, like, when certain things are not in place, that it's, there was, like, no will to make it happen, or that, etc. And um, without acknowledgement of the many barriers, challenges, hardships that kind of lead to these openings and moments that um, happened. And yeah, and I'm I'm really glad to to um, kind of learn more about that process. I'd love to know if there's any particular kind of frameworks that you're putting in in place, considering that, you know, in Montreal North we're talking about a, a very racialized community, an isolated community, and that obviously won't look like the the way that we would have a resource center um, for different communities. And are some, so, what are some of the considerations that you guys are putting in place?
0: So, cultural securization, that's one of the main um, frameworks that we're putting in place after working um, many years um, in the movement to end sexual violence and working with um, rape crisis centers. Time and time again, year after year, we would see that a lot of communities did not feel safe going to rape, like mainstream rape crisis centers because their approach was not safe in terms of um, considering how racism, how transphobia, how you know many other systems of oppression informed their experiences as survivors. And so for me, it was important considering the population in Montreal North for it to be a community-led project. That's why, you know, Hoodstock is working with different community orgs in Montreal North. It's, it's a community project. And also, you know, it's informed by people who live there. Um, Because a lot of times, unfortunately, when we talk about community orgs and people who work in community orgs in certain communities, a lot of times they don't come from these communities and they don't have knowledge on, you know, the issues that affect these communities. And so in Montreal North, unfortunately, a lot of community orgs are very, very white, and which is... Kind of difficult to understand when you have a, a a population that is highly racialized, and so for us it was important that um, that cultural securitization be a major framework, and that we ensure that the services that we that, that we do push forward or develop taking in, into account the needs of the population of Montreal North and also the people who work the few, you know when a resource center opens, the people who work there, are representative of the population that lives there. In terms of prevention, because one of the major um, objectives is to tackle sexual violence with prevention, prevention in schools, is we're building a prevention program, you know, that's going to be by and for. Um, I've worked on a lot of prevention, prevention plans um, in terms of, you know, the ones that are developed in mainstream rape crisis centers. And a lot of times they address sexual violence in a very stigmatizing way for our communities, like culture, our heritage, our culture is seen as a problem factor. And so um, we're trying to deconstruct all this and build a a prevention program that empowers our youth. And so, you know, we can address sexual violence and the fact that it is a taboo in a lot of our communities but through empowering ways, whether it be through the arts. So we have a lot of ideas in terms of um, ways in which we can address sexual violence that empower youth but and not stigmatize them where they can play an active role also. I have to say, um, I, I am privileged in the sense that I do have, I have a master's degree. So I do have, a, and I have a degree from here. So I know, I know the, the barriers that a lot of um, immigrant folks face um, they can have PhDs. It doesn't matter here in Quebec. They only take into account studies that, you know, are that you do here, and which is BS. But anyways, I am privileged in the fact that I do have uh, a degree that I completed here, and that helps. But it's not in women's studies. It's not in—basically, I did not work—I didn't do any professional work in terms of my degree. It's just a degree that has helped me, that has opened doors I guess like a lot of times I would put my um in my CV I would put my like lived experience I would frame my lived experience as professional experience and I like I would put it I would frame it in a way that it would you know it would be I considered it to be professional experience and a lot of times it would be a lot of organizing that I did and it wasn't necessarily paid that opened doors to interviews and then afterwards to my first job here in in Canada, the first job that I had here in Quebec, I was given that job because I was very active in community organizing around gender equality and around intersectional feminism. And so I think, you know, the organization that gave me the job, my first job here was looking, you know, for someone and they were looking for also their first, you know, black women this women's organization didn't have a, a history of including black women in terms of uh, their workforce little by little with a lot of you know the work that I do by in terms of community organizing it got respected as credentials i don't know if i have a specific uh, recommendation on how to do it but like i've always told people Um, especially like um, migrant women who are having difficulties entering the workforce or to like highlight platform and give the importance, the importance and merits to their um, experiences, even if they're not what we call professional experiences. But like I said, again, I am privileged in the fact that I do have a degree from a university here. I think that's some
2: one thing that I would maybe add to that. Um, for that question it's also just kind of who you know and and how you work that network as well um i know that within academia there is kind of been a bit, a bit of a pushback in terms of changing what we consider you know relevant experience um you know especially with, with faculty members and part publishing xyz articles really relevant to to the type of work that you want to do and um so there's like pushback on on, an, on academic sense in that way. But then also I think my personal experiences, whether that be in community or inside of academia has always been partly because either I was approached by people who knew of some of the work that I was doing or because I approach people very much in the sense of, you know, walk the talk that you <laughs> that you talk in, in the sense that, you know, you can't say that you're trying to to help racialized communities and people that don't necessarily have the credentials and et cetera, et cetera. But then when it come, when push comes to shove, you're not actually hiring them. You're not actually engaging with them. You're not um, creating opportunities for them, writing them their letter of recommendation or whatever it is that the support that people need. And so I, I think that's, really making people accountable of that, um, especially the organizations and the institutions that are, are claiming that that's the kind of work that they're trying to move towards is 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 so key. I see that there's another question. Let me see. <laughs> oh, the famous question. Oh, <laughs> the question is, any ideas on the N word? <laughs> I think I, if you want to answer it, you're more than welcome to answer it. Um, also, you are like, if you don't want to, that's totally cool. I think that. I've, I have organized several events this week, and this question shows up every single time. And so I think that people are either very interested or trying to instigate something one or the other.
0: I would just say that academic freedom cannot like be built on the oppression of black students, and I don't see any circumstance that's acceptable considering the history here in Quebec where and the present context where we have a government that refuses to uh, address systemic racism, uh, refuses to even acknowledge the existence of systemic racism, where you have a education system that is completely whitewashed and censored And the fact that we don't even address how slavery and colonialism has impacted Quebec society and continue to play out today. In that context, no, I don't believe any professor in any academic context should be using the N-word. So for me, it's easier. And I have no, I have, I have no... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to even dance around it. Or, you know, I think it's extremely, extremely offensive that in the present context that we're, especially in the present context that we're living, that we're still having this conversation or debate and that we're acting like students. We're not acknowledging power dynamics and we're not um, acknowledging the fact that, you know, in academia, students do not have, that type of power. You know, we're talking about oppression of academics. No, 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 no. We need to acknowledge that not long ago, maybe a hundred years ago, black students were excluded from universities, were excluded from programs in university. So it's not like today, all these dynamics and you know racial tensions and um, racial violence have just left university. In academia, they're still present, and we need to address them. So yeah, that's what I have to say.
2: You know, one of the things that I find kind of interesting about this this debate, and um, I'm not particularly interested in kind of like unpacking it right now because there's so it's it's so heavily the work that I have to do on a day to day. So I'm not really gonna touch too much on it. But I will say that you know for for many people who have who have been in support of Black Lives Matter and who have been kind of thinking about you know the ways in which systemic racism affects black communities, who have been thinking about um, the ways in which we're murdered, oppressed, dismissed, um, undervalued, et cetera, et cetera, it is mind boggling to me that these same people would have a narrative where our experiences and when we say that we are harmed and when we say that we don't want something and when we say that this is affecting us, that that still is considered debatable, that it's theorized, um, trivialized, all of the above, like that is above me. And so, um, so I guess that I would counter that question with a question of why is it that anytime that Black communities say that we can't breathe, um, the question is if that's actually true. That's how I feel about that. Um, to finish this wonderful conversation, I'm so happy that you're here. We have a question about how do you recharge your batteries?
0: How do I recharge my batteries? So, community. Community. Real community. So, I've told you before, need like most of my closest friends do not come from like the activist scene. Like most of my closest friends are, are 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 people who are like family, and so I know when to check out. Like I do the work that I believe in, um, but I also ensure that I do remember that I'm not just Marlianne the afrofeminist Marlianne the organizer. I'm also like Marlianne, who's very foolish and who likes to mm-hmm. joke and, you know, likes to party. And, you know, and so I surround myself by people who treat me as Marlianne and like acknowledge that I'm not just an organizer and that that's not the most important part of, you know, who I am. And also a lot of therapy. <laughs> I have a brilliant uh, Black therapist, and so, yeah, I'm privileged to have one, and um, that helps a lot.
2: There's another question that I really like, um, kind of in the same vein. So someone said, you both mentioned the how do you do it effect, and um, how do you find balance between self-preservation, also wanting to stand in your power, and just say, hell yeah, I do I do. I do it. I do it because I have to, because I'm more powerful than you think. But then how do you evolve falling to falling prey to feeling that we have to be quote unquote, strong black women?
0: So I guess also I forgot to mention my kid keeps me very grounded. Also, I have no choice. It's like, I have to, I have to take care of myself. And also like my kid, he doesn't care what I do. <laughs> he, don't, he don't he doesn't care at all. Like he never like he never sometimes he trolls me. Like you you've seen him troll me, but like he he's not he's not he's not there for it, you know? And so he keeps me grounded and then like I said um the people who the closest people that I have around me, they don't really care if tomorrow I stop organizing and they're there because they know who Marlene is beyond the organizer. And so, yeah, that's how it's like, you have to be careful who you surround yourself with. And also know that like, also when you're organizing, you can't fall into a trap where you find yourself becoming um, indispensable to a struggle. You know, there's so many people that I've met during throughout the years and I continue to meet that are brilliant. And that contribute behind the scenes. We never see them. They're never on media. And so I always try to discipline myself to, to not let ego play a big role in my work or in organizing. And understand that you know to maybe tomorrow I won't be I won't be doing this work anymore. But I but also ensure that I create conditions and my behavior um, opens doors. For other folks to continue the struggle, if I can't tomorrow,
2: I like I echo that feeling so much. I, in a few conversations ago, um, somebody was asking me a similar question, and and I 100% agree. It's just like I want to be as disposable as possible while still sitting in my powers, acknowledging the work that I do, knowing that it's important, but it's like ideally, if I i I should be replaceable, you know what I mean, like ideally, somebody would be able to take the the work on, and that's only really possible if we we leave behind structures that make that possible and and that's what I'm really more interested in and i and i a hundred percent agree my kid makes me keeps me mad humble and <laughs> nobody is not interested in the work that I do. he tells me that I'm on the computer too much um like there's just no respect for any of this, as well as my mom too, you know it's like they um it's it's actually quite interesting working from home right now because I think the, on both spectrums both sides of the age spectrum neither of them understand that when I'm on the computer all day that I'm working it, for them it's an illusion um <laughs> <so> <laughs> it keeps you humble and just kind of grounds me in other ways and and dancing I, I think for me is really dancing really keeps me kind of alive in other ways and yeah
0: I need, a, I need to I need to pick up a physical activity too because I'm not a good dancer Uh, Not compared to you. I thought I was a good dancer until I saw you. (laughs) So yeah.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much, Miley, for being here with us. It is always so great to to hear from you know all the work that you do, the brilliant mind that you have. I find that you are so grounded in um, in your experiences and 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 really one of the most intentional organizers I've met and in in, for, in my whole life you know like I feel like so much of um of what I encounter are are kind of contradictions in people and I feel like you face your contradictions before you even step out the door and that really shows in the work that you do and I'm just amazed by you.
0: Well thank you very much um it's an honor coming it's a Especially, it's special coming from you, because I admire you too. Thank you for inviting me. I hope we can continue working together.
2: Thank you so much, everyone, for being with us today.
1: Thank you for listening to the 4th Space Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at cu Fourth Space, and wherever else you find your podcasts. The podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced by Anna Voklovek. Editing by Chloe Lalonde and Makai Halkrow. Social media and web support by Kari Balmstead. Our theme music is courtesy of Supercontinent. Thanks for listening.